All right, so if you have that statement of faith with you, you can have that kind of in front of you as reference. Um, but today's statement of faith, it starts with this. It says, we believe that from all eternity, God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so we can see kind of the end result of this in scripture, in John's vision in Revelation 7, chapter, or chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our Lord God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so as we go through this statement this morning, as we talk through what scripture says about it, I do want you to keep that picture in mind. It's a great multitude of people, so many we can't count. Too often when this subject gets talked about, we forget that God desires and will save a lot of people, a great multitude of people. So going back to the statement, there is an underlying assumption that one, God has a unified plan for all creation from eternity past all the way to eternity future, which I get those aren't super helpful words necessarily, but it's the best way we can describe it. God has existed before time. He will exist forever. He has always existed. So eternity past to eternity future. And two, scripture shows that God chooses certain people and groups to be his own for his glory and their good. So let's kind of lay the groundwork there first before considering the rest of the statement. So we go all the way back from Revelation, last book of the Bible, we're going to go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God existed eternally and created everything, including time, the universe, earth, and everything that inhabits it. As the capstone of creation, God creates man and woman and gives them dominion over creation with a very specific prohibition. Don't eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you're familiar with the story, Adam and Eve disobey. They bring sin and rebellion against God into the world, and the relationship between God and his creation is fractured. But we see, even in the midst of this tragic fall of humanity, that the Bible is clear that God already has a plan. God was not taken back and surprised by Adam and Eve. We see this in Genesis 3.15. It's sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion. There's one of those technical terms. It means the first gospel, basically. It says in Genesis 3.15 that though the serpent, the snake that deceived Eve, may strike at humanity's heel, one day a descendant of Eve will strike the head of the serpent. And from there, to oversimplify, the rest of the Old Testament is an account of God faithfully keeping that promise and accomplishing his will despite humanity's inability to live in accordance to God's will. God chooses to save Noah, finds him, saves him, wipes out all the rest of humanity in the flood. God calls out Abraham out of Ur to be his people, to be the father of great nations. Calls David out to be the king. You see over and over, God chooses these people to be the representatives, to be part of his people. Moving forward into the Gospels, we see God's promise fulfilled through his own son, Jesus. Jesus finally lives in 100% obedience to God, something that we see throughout the Old Testament we cannot do. And then, 
is executed on our behalf, providing a way for us to have a relationship with God through his mercy. We then get a glimpse into the full realization of that plan in Revelation, that one day sin and death will be no more, where Satan is defeated, God's people along with this world will be renewed. Returning to the intended state of things before sin entered the world. So Jesus provides this way for us to be reconciled back to God. And we start to see tastes and foretastes that we see it in the uh, day of Pentecost, that people of all tribes and tongues and languages hear the gospel. And then we get to Revelation, we see this grand picture of all these different tribes all coming together to worship to be God's people. And so thanks to God giving us his inspired word through the Bible, we get to see how God for all eternity has had a plan and the will to save people from the death sentence that sin gives and make them his own people. And so God is determined to save people. That's clear throughout scripture, but why and how? And so the second part of our statement, many of the words that you see in that second part of the statement today, or new, chose, justify, sanctify, and glorify, either come directly from or, or their idea is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. So if you have a Bible app, want to go to that passage, that's probably where I'm going to hang out most of the day today. That's Romans 8, 29 and 30. And so while there are numerous places throughout Scripture that point to God's plan to specifically save people, this passage seems to kind of bring it most directly together and also ties most closely to the actual statement of faith that we're talking about this morning. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's go through this verse. We'll address each of these concepts and kind of see God's definite plan to save sinners. So kind of the first phrase, those whom he foreknew. Foreknew is one of those terms that may not be super clear. But foreknew kind of goes back to the Old Testament where the word know emphasized God's special choice of his people. For example, in Jeremiah 1.5, God calling Jeremiah says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God before the first word of creation knew who would be his people. All of scripture attests to God being the initiator of a special relationship with either an individual or an entire people group. So those who he had set apart for himself before creation, the next part of the verse says, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestined, I know, it's a word that gets a lot of people riled up. It's in there, it's in it's in scripture, it's a good, good translation. It is predestined, says it there. But God, knowing every person that would be his, whoever he foreknew, he predetermined that those people would become like Jesus. It's important to see that that predestined is tied to something too. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. God determined that those whom he foreknew would become like his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So having chosen and predestined his people, 
before time, God, through the Holy Spirit, then effectively calls them to faith. So there is a general call of faith that goes out from God to all creation through his people. We would call this evangelism. It also comes from creation. We see that in Romans 1. And it points towards the creator. But as many of you know, not everyone who hears the gospel comes to faith. So there must be some different type of call that is actually effectual in producing faith in those who God has foreknown. Titus 3.5 says that we, are not saved, that we are saved not because of our works, which would include making good decisions, but by God's mercy through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit calling directly those whom the Father has foreknown is effectual. It has an effect. It produces faith by regenerating our hearts. And so those who, in the verse Romans 8.29, says those who he called, he also justified. So let's review. Those whom he foreknew. You guys want to the next one? All right, cool. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be in the image of his son. And those that he predestined, he has called. And those who he has called, he has also justified. And so this is tying closely into what I just said from Titus. God shows us his mercy by declaring us justified. What does justified mean? It means that we're free from the guilty verdict that sin demands. And that sentence for that guilty verdict of sin is death. So the question is, how does God, who is fully righteous and just, do this? Does he just ignore our sin? Does he ignore what scripture says? Does he go against his own word? No, it's what we talked about with Jesus. Your sin does not go unpunished. It's just that you're not the one that bears the punishment for your sin. Jesus does. That's how God maintains his justice. Someone pays for your sin. But through faith, we're justified. Through a faith that was given to us from the Holy Spirit, we're justified so that Jesus takes our penalty for sin, and we don't. Through the faith that the Holy Spirit enables, God declares us justified. We receive Jesus' righteousness. That's the other side of it, too. We aren't only just declared not guilty, and we give Jesus our sin, and he's punished for it. We actually get Jesus' righteousness in exchange for our guilt. That's the gospel. That God the Father chose you to be part of his family. He sent God the Son to die in place for you, and then God the Holy Spirit enables you to have faith and place your trust in God. And through that faith, God now considers you righteous. He looks at you and sees Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't ignore your sin. He doesn't wink at your sin. He doesn't kind of count it against you. He sees Jesus' righteousness when he looks at you because you have a faith that has been given to you by him. God now considers you righteousness, and you're able to be in a relationship with him. You're free from the eternal consequence of sin, all because God moved on your behalf. And finally, in our passage, those who are foreknown, predestined, called, and justified are glorified. 
as mentioned earlier, someday God will renew all creation and resurrect his people to live in relationship with him. In that day, we will be glorified. That is, we will be alive in bodies that are unmarred by sin. In a world unmarred by sin. Paul writes that this is already having happened in this passage, he says, those who are glorified, because he has an assurance that God's ability to complete this plan, that he's going to glorify us. Because we have the track record of the Old Testament of God following through on his promises. We have Jesus who died for our sins. We have the Holy Spirit that's giving us assurance within our own hearts that we have been saved by faith. And so Paul can say that we are glorified. And so while we do experience a taste of that day today, living as one of God's children, us gathering together as a church is a foretaste of that. We have different backgrounds, different cultures, different tribes. We're gathered together here. But we look forward to a day where we fully experience this. We fully experience a living, living in relationship with God in the same way that Adam and Eve did before the fall. God's choosing a people to himself to ultimately bring them back to live in relationship with him just as he intended at creation. God has a plan. Now this plan is not general and attached. God intimately knows who are his. It says in scripture that things like John 17, 2 Timothy 2.19 are both examples of that. God knows the individuals that are his. In his surpassing wisdom, God has chosen a people for himself. Through Jesus, he has made a way to restore relationship with God. And then he enables us to make a meaningful decision through the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. So you might be wondering, okay, so why does this matter? Why are you so tied up in the mechanisms of, of how God brings us into the family of God? Isn't it just enough to know he does? And I think it matters because it affects how we live our life and how we understand the world we live in. Because if we think that we made a good decision on our own and it wasn't that it was a gift of God and that God had drawn us in, then it leaves open the possibility that we make a bad decision later and walk away. It means that we have a different motivation to do good works. Because if our works are what justify us, then our motivation is to stay justified. Our good works are a response to the Holy Spirit working and regenerating our heart first. And good works is the only rational response to the call of God to faith. You see, we talk a lot about Jesus' death buying our soul out of hell. But it also bought your life now. As we grow in understanding of the cost of our sin and we become more like Jesus, as God promises we will become because he has predestined us to do that. We will act more like Jesus in doing good works that glorify the Father. We do those good works not because we're earning favor. We've already been given favor. We've already become part of the family of God. We have Jesus' righteousness already. We do it as thankful children who have been invited to the table, invited into the home. 
We get to be used by God to continue to accomplish his will in this life. And in that, we get to glorify him to his creation. We get to proclaim how great and how glorious our God is who saved us to the rest of the world. That's our motivation for doing good works, is that we've already been saved, and now we get to be used by God to show his glory to everyone else. So for me, here's a really specific example for me on how this perspective shift has affected me. This doctrine that it's God acting in his own will alone to save people really changed how I saw evangelism. So I grew up in a tradition that uh, put, I'll put it politely, put more emphasis on uh, a person's individual decision than on God's action in salvation. So those who made the right choice, those who had a good idea, after hearing the gospel, were saved. God's eternal decisions were subject to a person's. And for me, that meant I better not blow it when I shared the gospel with people. Because if I didn't do a good enough job to convince them, they were going to go to hell. That fear of failure absolutely paralyzed me. I would just not share the gospel. Because I didn't think I knew enough yet. I didn't think I uh, had the best apologetics yet. I didn't think I had a good argument yet. Because I didn't want to mess up maybe what might be my one shot with my friends or my family. So instead I did nothing. But when I realized that it was God who was doing the saving, that it's God who already knows who are his, and that the Holy Spirit's the one that gives people faith to confess Jesus, I can share the gospel freely. And to the best of my ability, to be sure, I want to get better at it always. But I don't feel the weight of someone else's eternal destination relying on my sales pitch anymore. I get to experience the joy in seeing another one come to faith in Jesus sometimes. And the joy that in knowing that through my obedience, I'm offering my life up to the God who already has saved me as an act of worship. Understanding how God saved us and why God saved us changes the way we act as Christians. Another reason why it matters is this. It shows us that God is near and intimate. He's not far, he's not barely interested. God didn't just set up some kind of external boundaries for creation and then just leave it all the rest up to us and see where the cards fall. It wasn't good luck or good intellect that brought you to Jesus. It was the creator of everything knowing your name before you were even created. Let me say that again. It wasn't your good luck. It wasn't your good decision making that brought you to Jesus. It's that Jesus knew you before you existed. He knew everything about you. He knew everything you would do. And knowing all that, he said, you are my child. And not only are you my child, but I'm going to die in order to make sure that there's a way for you to be adopted by me. Now, if you're in this room, you're listening online, and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, uh, that doesn't mean I'm saying that you've been rejected flat out. In fact, I would probably say that the fact you're here 
that you're curious or searching or interested, or that you have a sense there's something missing, you should lean into that. Because it might be that this is God through the Holy Spirit doing the work of regenerating your heart. His timeline for each person is different. I don't know why. I don't know why some people who are gods live most of their life suffering through sin, suffering apart from the church, and God chooses to save them in the later years of their life. I don't know why God chooses for some of our children to find faith in early age and for some of us to have to suffer through watching our kid chase after sin for a while before saving. I don't know why. But I do know that God doesn't fail to accomplish what he has decided he's going to do. So if you're not sure about Jesus, if you're questioning, you've been drawn here and you're like, ah, people are nice, I'm here. I encourage you to, to stick with us, join this community. I feel pretty confident saying that I think God's probably trying to do something in you. Ask questions. And whatever obstacle you see in your life right now as I'm talking about this, you're like, yeah, not that. You don't know me. That keeps you from having faith in Jesus. God's over able. God is able to overcome them. I mean, God chose you before the beginning of creation. So whatever is in creation, he's not worried about. He created it. God's able to overcome them and give you the faith that you need to trust him. <sighs> okay, <laughs> that was a lot, I know. So let me leave you with this. God has a plan to save people. God chose to save you. And God has a plan to save others. There's a lot of questions that come up as we talk about this. But let me remind you that God is good and merciful and loving and long-suffering. And he has a house with a lot of rooms. There are more people to be added to the family of God. Family, if you like me, have people that you deeply love. that haven't put their faith in Jesus yet. God has a plan to save people. We don't know that plan in complete clarity. So we trust in God's goodness. We cling to that. I do. I have friends. I don't know why. I have family. I don't know why. But I cling to God's goodness and his righteousness and his justice and his power to overcome even the most resistant heart. And so we pray. God, your ways are not our ways. Thank you for your word that teaches us all we need to have faith and to live according to your will. Help us to take you at your word, even when we don't fully understand. Thank you for having a plan to save us from sin and death. Jesus, thank you for being willing to humble yourself and endure the punishment each of us deserve. Holy Spirit, thank you for changing our hearts and giving us faith so that we can trust in you. Help us to trust in you 
to know that you want to save a great multitude. That someday the family of God, when we are finally all gathered together, will be so great we can't count them. God, we give you all the glory because you're the only one worthy of glory. In Jesus' name we pray.